Go ahead and turn to Joel 3. That's where we're going to be going from this morning, um, reading from. And before we read, I want to have three questions that kind of that are on your mind as we read. Just three questions to frame the scripture here. One is, who do you imagine Jesus to be? And you, when you just imagine Jesus, who, who is he? Two, who does the world say Jesus is? And three, who does the Bible say Jesus is? So I want you to be thinking about those three things as we read. So Joel 3, and we're going to read verses 1 through 16. It's, it's a lot of reading, so just bear with me. So if you don't know where Joel is, um, if, I, don't know if it's your, I don't know who's new and who's not here. If you're a new Christian, it's sort of towards the middle, kind of past Psalms and the, and the Prophets. So you can flip through it for a minute. Or if you're on a device, that makes it really easy. But, um, so Joel 3. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up. I will stir them up to the place which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the land of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, and their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, you are such a great and powerful and glorious God and an amazing Savior. And Lord, we come to you today and we ask you to make our hearts soft, to hear your word, make us good soil so that what we hear will bear fruit. Lord, that we will be faithful to you and that we will continue to grow into your image as the people of God. And Lord, fill me with your spirit to proclaim your word in the right way, Lord. And I pray that 
for anyone who doesn't know you this morning or who is a little bit far off, that you would bring them in. Lord, let them see your glory and your beauty. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I was going to mention, Elisa's prophecy was right on track with my sermon, so it's going to be, it was a perfect setup for what we're talking about, so just to confirm what she said. So I want to start off, I talked about who is Jesus, who does the Bible say Jesus is, and who do we think Jesus is, and I'm going to start with the four common misconceptions of Jesus that I see in the culture commonly. So the first is what I call the coffee shop Jesus, and this is the guy who just wants to meet you for breakfast. I'm not uh, comparing that to what I said about Jamie at all. I just realized that could sound funny. (laughs) No, uh, this is the guy who just wants to give you a few out-of-context Bible verses in the morning and encourage you and make you feel good, get through the day, just enough kind of encouragement to get to the next day. And then he'll just kind of leave you alone for the rest of your day. You don't have to submit You don't have to think about him. You just go to work, you do your thing, and then you come home, go to bed, and you wake up and do the same thing the next day. But there's no real power and change in your life from this Jesus. He's just giving you kind of what you want to hear every morning to get through. The second I would call the philosopher Jesus. So this means he's just a great teacher. He's just another opinion that we can kind of put in our our bag and pull out something he said when it's convenient. And his main goal is just to make us deeper thinkers, maybe make us a a little more broad-minded, better people, you know, more in touch with our human nature or the human race. But there's no power here either. His power, this version of Jesus is just not connected to anything supernatural in in the power. It's just a mental thing. It's just a teaching. It's just another teaching. Again, there's no change here. There's no submission. The third... And I think this is the dominant view of who Jesus is in our culture, is the tolerant Jesus. And this is the one who accepts everybody, but he demands absolutely nothing from our lives. He certainly doesn't expect me to change anything about myself. In fact, when we think about, when I think about this Jesus, he just thinks everything I think. You know, we never disagree on anything at all. This is, he's great. And, uh, You'll hear him say things like this. People uh, present Jesus this way sometimes, like, love is love. You might have heard these kind of things thrown out in the culture. Love is love. No one can judge you. You do you. That seems popular these days. There's even a book now called Girls Stop Apologizing. And uh, hopefully I didn't hit home too much. But you need to pursue your own dreams is what this book says. And you certainly shouldn't feel guilt or shame about anything. You know, you just need to do what you need to do. Stop apologizing to everybody. This, is, this comes from this view as the tolerant Jesus. And fourth, and this is another huge one, especially in the church culture in America, and I'll call it the TED Talk Jesus. And he's just self-help. That's what Jesus is here for, self-help. We're almost there. And he only demands things from you that will just make your life better, make your bank account bigger, or your self-esteem larger. So this Jesus will give you these things. It's all about our efforts. And this is the Jesus for all of us who are already strong-willed, if you're in that category. It only works if you're really strong-willed and have a lot of self-control and discipline. Because you don't really think you need a savior. You just think you just need to be a little better. And that's like the the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what do I need to do? And I've done all that. Well, then Jesus really went to his heart, right? So this view won't go to your heart. This Jesus, he'll just keep improving who you already are, the TED Talk Jesus. 
But that's not the real Jesus. So I want to take our sights from those false views that I think we're so drawn into culturally, because they're all out there, and turn us to who Jesus really is, which is who we saw in Joel this morning. And I don't know if you caught all of it, but we'll go through it. And I want you to imagine the real Jesus, the Messiah, the Lion of Judah, the King, the warrior who returns on the white horse to defeat his enemies, which you will read about in Revelation soon. I know you're in a series in Revelation, so I'm hoping this sermon will somewhat supplement everything Ben's doing. I started listening to that, and it's really good what Ben's preaching on. So hopefully this will just supplement what he's doing. There's a theologian who said, we can be fairly certain that the Jesus we like, that we feel most comfortable around, who arouses our sympathy for human goodness and reminds us of our highest ideals is not the historical Jesus. And that's what I want you to see here in Joel. We're confronted with the Jesus that's uncomfortable to us. This is the judge, the warrior. This is the one who's coming to judge the earth. He's coming with unflinching vengeance and unsettling certainty in his judgments. He's taunting his enemies to battle against him. I don't know if you caught that. He's telling them to come out to war, you know. Come out and say you're a warrior. Uh, he see, we see a God who roars, and when he roars, the heavens and the earth shake. And we see a God also who loves his people with a jealous love. He fights his, the battles for his people, and he's going to be a refuge for us. So he's all these things. He is that great God who is our refuge, but he's also a fearful God who's coming again. So the problem is, with all these other views with Jesus, the central problem is, is they don't dress our central need. Our biggest need is to be saved from sin and death, not just to be a little better. It's not just that we lack a little encouragement day to day. That's not the problem, although sometimes we could use that. That's not the main problem. It's not that we just need to think higher thoughts. That's also not the main problem. It's not that we need to accept, be more self-accepting. That's not the main problem. And it's not that we need to make ourselves better. The problem is that we're sinners who have disobeyed God. That's the big problem. And we need a Savior who can save us from the wrath of God. We need a warrior who's going to fight that battle for us, and that's Jesus. He's going to redeem us from slavery. He's going to fight our battles for us and finally defeat our enemies, which the last one we have is death. So we need a holy, righteous, and just warrior king to come and fight on our behalf. So the big idea, and I think, I don't know if they're doing the slides or not, but the main idea is that the Lord is a warrior who is jealous for you, who is a deliverer for you, and who is a refuge for you. So the Lord is those three things, if you want to kind of frame our whole morning. He's a deliverer for you, he's jealous for you, he's a deliverer for you, and he's a refuge for you. So the first point, big point then is that the Lord is a warrior who is jealous for you. And you can hear this in that first section we read. If you want to be looking at verses 1 through 8, I'm not going to reread them because it's so much, but you can just have, kind of have them in front of you as I talk and you'll see where this is coming from. So we, we're here in this promised restoration of Israel that Joel is, is prophesying. And what we hear is that there's going to be an age when God will pour out a spirit on all people. That was just before this in Joel. And he's looking ahead to this restoration. And this, prov, pro, and this eventual promise that's going to happen means that all of Israel's enemies will be vanquished. And that promise is for us too, right? All of our enemies, we're still waiting for that final restoration when all of Israel's enemies are vanquished. This ultimately looks forward to the second coming of Christ. And we hear that in Acts 3 when Peter says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, 
as, you did, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, thus he fulfilled. Repent, repent therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So in these first eight verses, we see this final judgment day coming. The Lord summons the nations to this valley of Jehoshaphat, and all that word means is that Yahweh judges. Jehoshaphat means Yahweh judges. So this isn't like a particular valley where they're trying to paint a picture of. It's an image. It's an image of God's judgment where he's going to bring all these people to this large open place to be judged by him. And what are the th accusations that he brings against the enemies of God? He brings three. He says, first, they have scattered my people and my heritage. So they're not just any people, they're God's people, just like we are. He identifies so closely with them and with us that wronging them or wronging us is like wronging God. Second, he says, they have divided my land. So the land of his people is his land. Again, he's identifying directly with his people. Third, he says, they have sold my people into slavery. So they had devalued life so much that you can hear they're selling boys and girls for temporary pleasures. God cares so much how we treat our children. And we have to hear that in God's heart here. He cares so much about our children. Children are so important to him. And we can't sit by with indifference as the world tries to steal our children. Because God hates it. You can hear it here. So... The question is, are we participating in behaviors that sell our children into slavery? And we have to apply this to our life today. And I'm going to mention just three that I think directly relate that are in our modern culture that do sell our children into slavery, that it's absolutely unacceptable for a Christian to be engaged in. First is pornography. You know, every time you look at the screen... You're not, it's not just about you. There's someone on the other end of that. There's a whole industry of sex slavery out there that steals these people's lives. It's not only harming you. It's robbing men and women of their souls. It's taking daughters from fathers, sisters from brothers, and it's totally unacceptable. And God hates it. We need to hear that. Second is abortion. We need to realize when we think that's an acceptable out, that we just sell our children to death so that we can do whatever we want to do in that area of our life, God hates that too. You're selling these people, these lives, and for a moment of pleasure. And as Christians, we have, we have to speak up. We have to do whatever we can to stop these things. You can hear God's heart here. In whatever way we can engage, we have to. Third is the illegal and prescription drug trade which also contributes to slavery. Whether it's actual, you know, the cartels can run, they kidnap people all the time. Or it's the actual slavery to the drug itself. And these are things we cannot participate in. We cannot be just thinking, it's okay for me to do that. It's no big deal, because it is. It's selling people into slavery, and God has redeemed us from slavery. And we need to hear God's heart here, that he loves our children, he loves us, he loves his children. And he doesn't want us enslaved to anything. So if you are any, any, involved in any of those actions or any of those behaviors, today's the day to repent.
to turn from those things. You know, I would encourage you, especially if you're in an addiction, you need to open up to somebody, whether that's with pornography or drugs or alcohol. You need to confess. Confess to your, pe- your elders, your pastor. I know you have an awesome group of leaders here, and I know they'll, they'll be more than happy to help you and to, to pastor you through that. So these people are God's people, like I said, and actions against them are actions against God himself. So he talks about the house of slavery there. You said mentioned that. And when you hear this language about being sold into slavery, you should immediately make some biblical connections. First, you should remember that Israel was in the house of slavery in Egypt before they were delivered and redeemed by God. So when God was about to give the people of Israel the Ten Commandments after this great deliverance from Egypt, he reminded them, I am the Lord your God, this is in Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So in order to help you kind of imagine what this house of slavery is like that we're in before we're redeemed, I want you to imagine traveling in some foreign country, maybe you're on your honeymoon or like a, I don't know, an anniversary trip or just with some friends, and you're out, and all of a sudden some van pulls up next to you, they kidnap you, they take you, they blindfold you, they take all your communication and devices, and they drop you off somewhere after hours of driving at this house of some wealthy person there, and you become their slave. And there's no way out. You don't even know where you are. There's no way out. There's no way home. There's no way for anyone to get to you. And I want you to know that's where you are without Jesus. You're right there. You're, you're in an impossible situation without Jesus. You're lost. You're in a house of slavery that you cannot get out of. Second, with this house of slavery image, after the deliverance from Egypt, there's a theme where God's people return to slavery because of their sins against God. Isaiah said in Isaiah 51, Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Before your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. So the Israelites were subject to these patterns of slavery because of their disobedience. And what we are taught in the New Testament is that the ultimate slavery is the slavery to sin. Paul told the Romans, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So what you need to know then is that God also takes it personally when you are attacked by the enemy, when injustice is done to you, and when you are in bondage. When we are persecuted, Jesus is persecuted. When we are afflicted, Jesus is afflicted. And Jesus is the warrior who has delivered and will deliver his people, who is his bride. He loves us that much, like we're his bride. So God considers it just to afflict those who afflict his people, as it says in 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 8. Also, God takes it personally when what the enemy does to his people. When, when Jesus confronted Paul, what did he say? Paul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't even mention his people. It was such a direct connection. We have such a union with Christ that when we're persecuted, Jesus is persecuted. We're his bride. And as we know, if someone starts messing with your spouse, that's, that becomes personal really fast, right? That's, you know, if it doesn't, maybe something's wrong there. <laughs> you should react. If someone starts messing with your spouse, you're going to react pretty quickly and, and probably violently in some way, you know. It's going to be a, a quick thing. And that's the way. We're the bride of Christ. We need to know he loves us that much. He cares for us when we're, when we're being persecuted. 
In Song of Solomon 8, it says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. So if that describes the, the love between a husband and a wife, just imagine the fierce and jealous love that Jesus has for you, because it's more pure, it's stronger than even the love between a man and a woman. So when you're imprisoned in this house of slavery, this house where in sin, all those false conceptions of who Jesus is that I mentioned at the beginning just aren't going to work. Those aren't going to get you out of the house of slavery. We know that. We need the Jesus whose love is like the flashes of fire that consumes all the things holding you bound. That's the Jesus we need. We need this warrior. We need him to bring justice and salvation because that's the real Jesus, the Jesus who comes and takes away our, and fights our battles for us, who comes and breaks the chains of the things that are holding us bound. So I've been assuming the whole time that you understand the concept of Jesus as a warrior, but I'm going to talk about that a little more in the second point, which is that the Lord is a warrior who is a deliverer for you. So if you look back at verses 9 through 15, that's where we'll be for the next few minutes. In this section, I'm not going to reread it again just because it's a lot, but in this section, he tells them to get ready for war. And this call goes to everyone, from the mightiest to the weakest. And even the farmers are called to turn their farming instruments into weapons of war. So the big idea then is that this includes everybody. That's what we're hearing here. God is calling all people, everyone, to judgment, to this place of judgment. All people from all nations are called to this valley. And he wants them to hurry themselves there. And then all of a sudden, Joel changes the language here. And what does he say? He says, God, bring down your warriors. So here we have all of a sudden this shift here, right? God's called them to come out to war, and now Joel is calling all of them to come out, the, the warriors of God to come down to bring judgment. So this is the valley where the Lord judges, and there will be a holy war. And this war and this judgment, they're all the same thing. The war and the judgment are one. It's where God judges. So this, the king is coming, and his warriors are coming with him. All of heaven's armies. He's called the commander of heaven's armies at another place in the Bible. And they're going to sit in judgment of the nations. And there's a, there's a finality and decisiveness to this judgment that just becomes unsettling as we continue to read. But on the other side of this is that it secures our future forever as God's people. There has to be both. Our future can't be secured without the God who comes to make war and to judge. So the imagery here should remind you immediately of, of Exodus, when God's people are called out and they're going through the, the water, and all of a sudden, you know, he calls, it, Egypt comes in, right? And then here comes the judgment. The waters come back over them. There's the same images being invoked here, where God brings his judgment in this valley of all of Israel's enemies. It was after the Exodus that we hear the first song that celebrated God as a warrior. So Exodus 15, it says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. So that phrase, man of war, 
That's kind of an old English phrase. We don't use that anymore. It, it means warrior. That's the more modern way of saying that. I don't know why they translated it that way. But man of war, that's a warrior. So the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. So that's who God is for his people. That's wh- I want you to hear that. That's who God is. He is the God who delivers us and saves us from our enemies. He is mighty in battle. There's no enemy who can stand against him. And Joel is looking forward to the day when Christ returns, the warrior, when he brings judgment and he returns to fight this final battle for us. And now we're going to turn to Revelation for a minute. I don't know if these are coming up, but Revelation 19, 11 through 16, if you want to follow. And uh, I hate to steal Ben's thunder here. Y'all got a, y'all got a ways to go. Maybe you'll forget by the time you get to <laughs> 19. <laughs> we did a series on Revelation in our church a few, uh, I don't know, two or three years ago. And it was long. So brace yourselves. <laughs> but it's a great study. Um, so Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So that's the Jesus we serve. It's none of these imitations we talked about. That's the Jesus we serve. He's mighty, and he's coming again to judge. So he's more than that nice guy at the coffee shop. I just want to tie this in for you. He's more than making you feel warm and fuzzy. This doesn't make you feel warm and fuzzy, I, sh- I don't think. It doesn't make me feel warm and fuzzy when I read Revelation 19. Jesus is bigger than that. He's love, but he's also perfect in his judgments and righteous in all of his ways. He's the warrior that can deliver you from temptations, fears, and snares that you face throughout the day. So it's so much better. That's what I want you to hear. It's so much better than someone who just makes you feel good. He can actually rescue you. Jesus is more than a great teacher. He is the most profound teacher that ever lived. We, we recognize that, right? But he's more than that. They're meant to transform your life, his teachings. And they demand from us faith and allegiance to him. It's a teaching that demands us to act and repent. He's the warrior who can deliver you from anxieties, from behaviors, and the words that undermine your relationships. Because we know that just learning a little bit more doesn't actually change those fundamental ways that we behave and react. We need a warrior who comes in and delivers us from those, those patterns of behavior that break down our relationships in our life. Jesus is better than tolerant, much better than tolerant. That's such a weak Jesus to serve. He's much better than that. He calls all sinners who are weary to come to him to find rest. He wants sinners to come to him. He's gracious and merciful, but his holiness demands something from us. It demands justice. He saves you when you are still his enemy and receives you as you are. Then he demands your full allegiance, and he will not leave you as you are. He's going to change you because he's not tolerant of your sin. He can't be. He's holy and righteous. He can't tolerate it, so he's going to change you by his power. 
Jesus gives you more than a better version of yourself, which we should all say amen to. That's, he gives you much more than just a better you. Much more. There's no one who can give you better advice than him. He can. He'll give you the best advice. He created you the way you are for a reason. He loves you for who you are because he created you that way. But he's, he's, he came to do a lot more than that because he knows you need more than just a push in the right direction. He's the warrior that can deliver you from the body of death, the bondage of sin, and the power of Satan. So he's the warrior that can do all that in your lives. He's the deliverer who fights the battles that you could never win. So like I said, the the flip side of this deliverance, though, is justice. For us to be delivered, there has to be justice. We saw that justice on the cross that poured down on Jesus. But there's also coming a day when that justice in the second coming and the final judgment will pour down on all who don't turn to Jesus. His deliverance means destruction of all those who do not believe. In Jude 5, he says exactly this. Jude does. He says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So the same God, this same Jesus who redeemed, destroyed And that's what we're going to see again. Jesus, the same Jesus who redeems us, is going to come to destroy and judge. So in in verses 13 and 14, if you have your Bible open still, we see an intensification of what this battle will mean for the enemies of God and his people. So we have this image presented of a wine press. And if you're not familiar with that, um, it's this big machine. It's like a stone that's cut, and it has these grooves cut for the wine to flow out of. And they put the grapes on it. And it presses the grapes into wine, and the wine flows out into vats. And uh, this was very common. There's a reason this image was used. Uh, I read, read in one source that it was another, I think, Hittite source or something like that, saying that in Israel at this time, there was more wine than there was water. So this was a very common, common thing. Everyone would have understood this image, but I want you to understand it because it's not common now. So you've got these grapes, and they're going to be pressed, and the, and the wine is flowing out. So what we're understanding then here from that is that in verse 13, when it talks about all these people coming into this valley, this valley of God's judgment, all of a sudden it's turning this valley into a wine press. And it should make your stomach churn a little bit because the image is all these people being crushed like grapes under God's wrath and their blood flowing out through this valley like one giant, huge wine press of God's wrath. This isn't the tolerant Jesus that we're falsely made to believe exists. In Isaiah 63, it talks about this God, this Savior. It says, Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save, Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation. And my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, 
and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. And then in Revelation 14, again, a reference to Revelation 14 through 20, he says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud like one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he, who had two sharp, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grapes, the grape harvest of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So there are multitudes and multitudes in this valley of decision. And when you hear that verse, it's sometimes misunderstood like it's the valley of our decision. But what it really means, it's the valley of God's decision. It's the valley of verdict is a, is a way to understand it. It's the valley of that final judgment, of that final decision of God's. And there's all these people, the multitudes and multitudes. So God, as judge, is announcing his final verdict against his enemies and carrying out his sentence. They're going to face, all the enemies of Jesus will face the winepress of God's wrath one day. That's not where you want to be. This should make you fear the Lord and tremble before him. So if you combine all these images from Revelation, Isaiah, and Joel, you can see that that winepress is coming and that the blood of those slain is like the juice of the grapes that flows from the winepress. And the sheer volume of this should make you feel sick. I know it did the first time I really understood how much blood it was. If you can really imagine, it's about 184 miles of blood, the 1600 stadia, that's as high as a horse's bridle. That, I think that would make any of us feel sick to see human, the human blood shed. And the one who's treaded that wine press is Jesus Christ himself. That's our Savior. And my question is, do you know that Jesus? Is that the Jesus you serve? Is that the Jesus you know? Or have you bought into one of the false views of who he is? We need to know Jesus for who he is. So coming to the last point, the last verse, 16. The Lord is a warrior who is a refuge for you. And this is the good news. So we come to this critical juncture in verse 16. Because right now I can imagine you're, you're probably thinking, who can escape judgment? How should we view a God like this who would slaughter this many people? And are we safe with a God like this? You know, those, um, if those questions popped up, that's okay. We should think those kind of things. We need to understand why we're safe. The answer is, it depends. Because our perception of God depends on our relationship to him, as one person said. The Jesus I'm describing to you will only sound good if you are in Christ today, if you are covered by his blood. This is only going to sound good to you if you're covered by his blood, if you are saved. 
if you're not saved, it's not going to sound good, and it shouldn't. It's a warning. It's a warning to turn and repent today from your sins. In verse 16, we're given the image of a lion roaring from Zion, and the roar is so powerful that the universe shakes. The whole universe shakes when Jesus roars. When this lion of Judah comes and he roars, the whole universe is under his power. And it says, um, like that battle cry that goes out, it will result in the enemy's final destruction when the heavens and the earth quake. In Isaiah 42, 13, it says, The Lord goes out like a mighty army. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. And the truth is that no man can stand against this warrior. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that you're almost good enough that you'll be able to prove at the end that somehow you've done enough to be righteous before Jesus. Nobody can stand before Jesus. Jesus is a great savior for us because he is a great warrior who crushes our enemies. And we should understand this because in our earthly battles, what, what does a warrior do? What's the whole function of a, of a soldier, a warrior? They come in to a place that needs to be secured, right? And the first thing you have to do to secure a place is push out the enemy. You have to destroy the enemy, and you have to create a perimeter, and you have to then secure the area that your people live in. That's what a warrior's for, is to secure us, to, to defeat our enemies and secure us. And that's what Jesus is for us. He's a warrior who does that. And when the Lord roars, he also destroys his enemies. But at the same time, he is a refuge to his own people. That same roar is both that goes out. So if you're in Christ today, just know that the Lord is a warrior, a fierce warrior on your behalf, and he's an everlasting refuge for you. And just like when the angel passed over at the Passover, if, you're, if you know that story, and he saw the blood, if you're under the blood of Christ, you're not gonna, your blood is not going to be spilled in that final judgment when that wine press comes to be trodden, when the peoples are judged. You're going to be saved by the blood of Christ if you put your faith in him. He's created that refuge in him for you. If you're outside of him, you need to know that Jesus came to live the perfect life that you could never live. He died on your behalf for your sins, and he was raised for your justification. He came to do all that for you, and he's opening the way of salvation for you today. You need to respond. You need to respond, repent of your sins, be forgiven, and receive the Holy Spirit so that you can walk in this newness of life that we're promised so you should see why now this offer of salvation is so great. It's so great. You should understand why, because of what's coming. You won't understand how great the offer of salvation is if you don't understand how horrible the judgment is that's coming. You might even be tempted to just not think it's a big deal, but it's huge. And that day when he comes, it will be the day of our final redemption, and we should all be really excited about that day. We should be looking forward to it when we're resurrected, we're given new bodies, and we live with Christ forever without pain, without sorrow, without sin. So I want to end by talking about the lion and the lamb. And if you're one of those who've fallen prey to one of these false ideas of who Jesus is, I really hope that I've lifted your sights from that today to see who Jesus really is, who he, who he really is as God as the Lord of lords and the King of kings, that you have a higher and more accurate view of him. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he's also called the Lamb of God who came to take our sins. He's so much more than nice. 
He's so much more than smart, and he's so much more than tolerant, and he's so much more than a motivator. Like I said, he's the king of kings, the lord of lords, the commander of heaven's armies, and he's the creator and the judge of the universe. All things exist in him and through him, and he's a mighty warrior that has come to redeem us from the slavery of sin. So to end, I'm going to read a, a kind of long quote, but it's so good. I just wanted to read it. It's by Jonathan Edwards. It's from a sermon called The Excellencies of Christ. And I, I remember when I first read this, it just so struck me. If you know anything about him, he was just a brilliant writer. Um, his, page, his sermons were like 35 pages long, so every Sunday, just be thankful that <laughs> you don't have a three-hour sermon or whatever, however long it takes to read 33 pages. Uh, yeah, anyway, so to end, I want you to, to call to mind this idea of Jesus being the lion and the lamb. He says, if you are a poor, distressed sinner whose heart is ready to sink for fear that God never will have mercy on you, you need not be afraid to go to Christ for fear that he is either unable or unwilling to help you. Here in Christ is a strong foundation and an inexhaustible treasure to answer the necessities of your poor soul. And here is infinite grace and gentleness to invite and embolden a poor, unworthy, fearful soul to come to it. If Christ accepts of you, you need not fear, but that you will be safe. For he is a strong lion for your defense. And if you come, you need not fear, but that you shall be accepted. For he is like a lamb to all that come to him and receives them with infinite grace and tenderness. Tis true, he has awful majesty. He is the great God and is infinitely high above you. But there is this to encourage and embolden the poor sinner, that Christ is man as well as God. He is a creature as well as the creator. And he is the most humble and lowly in heart of any creature in heaven and earth. This may well make the poor unworthy creature bold in coming to him. You need not hesitate one moment, but may run to him, and cast yourself upon him, you will certainly be graciously and meekly received by him. Though he be a lion, he will only be a lion to your enemies, but he will be a lamb to you. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so great and mighty above even what we can understand from this sermon. Your glory is is so great in the universe that you created everything. Lord, you are perfectly holy, perfectly loving, humble. You are perfect in all of your ways, in all of your ways to us. Lord, and I pray that our hearts will humbly submit to you, that our whole lives will be lives of worship to you, that we will be holy, that we will be set apart out of the world, that we will not conform to the patterns of this world, but will be conformed to the image of Christ. And, and God, I ask for your grace and your mercy for your Holy Spirit to come. Lord, and break bondages. Lord, break chains. Reveal yourself as this mighty warrior today to everyone here. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>